2: complete terms
3: it's brand new season two
5: Hello, and welcome back to the Mark Moss Show, where we are always talking about the decentralized revolution, breaking it down for you play by play so you can see exactly how the world is changing, but not just see how it's changing, but to understand it and make the right decisions to prepare yourself and your family for what's to come. If you haven't guessed it yet, this is actually Q, Mark's producer, and I'm filling in for Mark for this hour. I'll be the one breaking down some of the biggest news stories from around the world so you can be better prepared. If you missed yesterday's show with Mark, don't worry, we've got you covered. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All our episodes are available there, so you don't have to miss a thing. Mark will be back tomorrow, so let's break down some of these stories today. I'll be discussing the latest news out of Eastern Europe and why food prices may be going up again very soon. As well as the U.S. presidential candidate who just last week announced plans to back T-bills... With gold, silver, and Bitcoin, the G20 seems to be losing influence amongst its own members. And of course, China can't be bothered by anything a US politician has to say to them. But let's dive right into it now. The latest news out of Russia and Ukraine is that Russia has pulled out of the Black Sea grain deal. Now, you may be asking, why is this significant? What is the importance of this? And why should I care? Well, Ukraine turns out is actually the breadbasket of the world, and specifically Europe. They produce 10% of the wheat and 15% of the corn that the entire world produces. In Europe, Ukraine is actually the source to about 40% of the wheat imports and 20% of the corn imports. The end of the Black Sea grain deal could lead to shortages of these crops in Europe and in turn, higher prices. So the entire war has disrupted Ukraine's grain exports the prices have been rising sharply. In fact, the price of wheat has increased by about 50% since the war began, and the price of corn has increased by about 30% since the war began. It goes even further than that. In Europe, the price of a loaf of bread has increased by about 30% since the war started. Now, I know we talk a lot about inflation in this show, and we talk a lot about the monetary debasement that has been the root cause of inflation. Yet, we haven't heard a number like 30%. Thrown out by any country, at least not in a developing nation. We tend to hear in America it's been a peak of 9%. Most recently we got a 3% read. In Europe, they're still dealing with higher inflation, but it's nowhere near 30%. But you and I know that when we go to the grocery store, it's not 5% inflation, it's 50%, 40%. Anyone else remember when the price of eggs was skyrocketing? Well, here's another thing that's not only just a random thing at the grocery store, but it's bread. Bread and grain, which coincidentally is actually one of the main caloric resources for people around the world. This is the main way people consume calories, is by eating different forms of grain. So if you're going to see an increase in the price of grain, people are going to suffer. And as sad as it is to say, it's not going to be in America, and it might not be in Europe at first. It'll be in developing nations that really feel this to start. So I want to break down a little bit more, though, about what this agreement actually entailed. So the agreement allowed Ukraine to export grain through three Black Sea ports, and forgive my pronunciation of these, Odessa, Chornomorsk, and Pivdeni. Oh, the first one, I felt so good after that, but I digress. These are the three ports that essentially Ukraine was allowed to export their grain to the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. The agreement in question was actually brokered very recently, and it was helped Done with the help of Turkey and the United Nations, and it only came into effect late June, like a month ago. So this isn't something that has been in place from the beginning of the war. In fact, the the results of grain prices increasing from the war led leaders to essentially say, Hey, we need we need to create some agreement at least for this, for the transport and export of grain, because everyone is suffering. So The agreement, as I mentioned, was designed to alleviate the global food crisis that had been caused by the war in Ukraine. The end of the black Sea grain deal is likely to lead to even higher food prices. This could have a significant impact on food security in many parts of the world, especially developing countries. Now, I want to highlight that because, you know, in the U.S., even in China, different European countries, they tend to have reserves, you hear it talked about a lot, oh, the US is tapping into its oil reserves. They're selling their oil reserves in the market. We also have grain reserves. We have wheat reserves. We have these wheat reserves so that in the event of a global food shortage, hey, no panic. We have months, some countries like China have years worth of grain stored up in the event of something like this. Now, that's for more developed countries. Developing countries unfortunately don't have the infrastructure are not able to plan ahead and the best example of this that we actually saw last year was in Sri Lanka and a lot of the issues in Sri Lanka were due in part because the IMF were instigating all of these crazy green energy you have to do this you have to do that and of course no one else in the the IMF is listening to it but they're forcing Sri Lanka to do it and then as a result they're not producing enough money and they can't go out and buy the wheat that they need to import to feed their citizens. And then, of course, if there's no bread in the grocery store, if there's no food to eat. People get really upset. Was that old saying, you're three meals away from a revolution? So, this is not something insignificant. And I want to just share with you essentially what a Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, told journalists. He essentially said, This has been halted until Russia's demands were met. Russia has essentially been feeling as though this is a little too one sided. And essentially Ukraine has been provoking Russia and attacking Russian civilian and military facilities in the Black Sea area, and said that the United Nations and Ukraine's Western allies have not addressed Russian demands. Russia has repeatedly accused Ukraine of violating the agreement by firing on Russian ships and civilian vessels in the Black Sea. Russia has also demanded that Ukraine demine waters around its ports, which Ukraine has refused to do so The end of this agreement is likely to lead to higher global food prices and could worsen the global food crisis, meaning that families are going to have to spend more money just to put food on the table for their families. It's going to be really hard, especially if you're saving in fiat, especially if you're saving in currencies that are being inflated away on top of the fact that prices are increasing. We have a lot more to talk about, so be sure to stick around through the commercial break. We're going to be breaking down some news out of the rest of the world, so be sure to stick around. We'll be back after this.
1: Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions
6: apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money, so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
5: Hello and welcome back to the Mark Moss Show where we talk about the decentralized revolution. We're running through some of the latest breaking news stories from around the world. My name is Q and I'm filling in for Mark for this hour. If you missed our last segment, be sure to check out the full episode available on every podcast platform. Just search for The Mark Moss Show. Now, we always like to look at the world through the lens of politics, finance, and technology. And one of my favorite topics to discuss is whenever these three intersect. And Bitcoin continues to find itself at this intersection. It seems as though Bitcoin is picking up a lot of steam in the political realm. There are three presidential candidates who are pro Bitcoin. You have another one who is vehemently against CBDCs, so four total against CBDCs, which, by the way, breaking news, as of today, FedNow has officially launched. This is the Federal Reserve's planned CBDC rollout. This is just now breaking, so we will see as it develops, and we'll have Mark reporting on this more next week. But for now, to be aware, but the big story for this week is actually RFK Jr., Now, RFK Jr. announced his plans to back the dollar with Bitcoin, but I'm going to read some of his quotes from his speech, and then we're going to dive into, is this realistic? Is this possible? And I'm going to pull up a historical example and show you what happened the last time someone tried to do this. So, RFK, my plan would be to start very, very small. Perhaps 1% of issued T-bills would be backed by hard currency, by gold, silver, platinum, or Bitcoin, Kennedy said. Backing dollars in the U.S. debt obligations with hard assets could help restore strength back to the dollar, rein in inflation, and usher in an era of American financial stability, peace, and prosperity. Now, I want to unpack that last part, specifically the ushering in the new era of American peace. Now, I want to share two more quotes from RFK Jr., and then I want to share a paragraph that provides some historical context of What exactly is going on? So, my uncle, President Kennedy, when he was in office, understood the importance of hard currency and the dangers of having pure fiat currency with no other option. He understood the relationship between fiat currency and war. Fiat currency was invented to fund wars. You can't just print money to fund wars and tax the public through the hidden tax of inflation. You actually have to go to the public and say, Here's what this war is going to cost if you are on a sound money system. Now, I'm gonna read a paragraph from my favorite book, Bitcoin book, The Bitcoin Standard by Safedina Moose. Um, For any other Bitcoiners out there, if you've read it, you may remember this passage in passing, but the paragraph I'm reading is in reference to World War I. With the simple suspension of gold redeemability, government's war efforts were no longer limited to the money that they had in their own treasuries, but extended virtually to the entire wealth of the population. For as long as the government could print more money and have that money accepted by its citizens and foreigners, it could keep financing the war. Previously, under a monetary system where gold as money was in the hands of the people, government only had its own treasuries to sustain its war effort, along with any taxation or bond issues, to finance the war. This made conflict limited and lay at the heart of the relatively long periods of peace experienced around the world before the 20th century. So this is alluding to the fact that, you know, these forever wars that we continue to find ourselves in pretty much since World War II, well, they're due directly to the fact that we don't have a sound money system. And the really scary part is most of these countries it's not just Germany went off the gold standard, it was the UK went off the gold standard, it was France went off the gold standard, it was Italy. Every country involved essentially said, hey, I, I don't want to be the one to say, hey, I'm out of money, I'm backing out of this war. It was like a giant game of chicken. So what happens though on the other side of the war? Well, all of these countries, including Germany, which we know what happens post-World War One to their currency, but also the UK. They all decide, we're going to go back to the gold standard. But you have just printed more money and put more money in circulation and then are trying to re-peg it, saying, hey, it's worth the same as it was before we printed 10 times more fiat currency that now is in circulation. And as I mentioned, like, the Weimar Republic is famous for their hyperinflation. I will never forget being told the stories of you had to go with a wheelbarrow full of cash, hard cash, to buy a gallon of milk. That's a scary proposition, to say the least. But the idea that we will just return to a gold standard, I think it's a little naive. The thing that I do like about RFK Jr.'s plan is it's not a I'm just going to jam this down. We're going to do it, all the dollars. No, in fact, it's it's going to be just T-bills, and it's going to be a, a small amount. Of, let's see if this works. Well, let me tell you something. It might work, and it might not. But the idea that this is something that we want to propose, this is something we want to explore, that's where the value is, at least right now, at least today. We've seen it time and time again during these presidential elections where a candidate who may not necessarily win continues to pound the drum on a topic, on an idea, so that topic and idea will continue to be discussed long after this candidate is no longer campaigning. Now, whatever side of the aisle you sit on is irrelevant, whether you agree with RFK Jr.'s stance or not Is irrelevant. I think it's important to recognize that a lot of the financial decisions that we find ourselves in are a direct result of the fact that we just have this excessive money printing and just spout pouring money everywhere whenever the powers that be decide, oh, we should go do this. So we're just going to fund it accordingly. This will slowly help to reaffirm the actual incentives of government and have them explain why they're spending money. Where they're spending money on, and we can start to have a better voice as a result. Time will tell, to say the least. But another thing, again, it would be a disservice to not highlight and discuss this. Um, Kennedy also announced that his administration will exempt the conversation of Bitcoin to the US dollar from capital gains taxes, i.e., if you sell your Bitcoin for a gain, you will not be taxed on that gain. Um, This is as close to becoming legal tender in the country as you can be with the exception of you're not going to be able to go to the grocery store to buy stuff with Bitcoin, but theoretically you would be able to sell your Bitcoin and take that money and immediately use it towards purchasing your groceries without having to worry about the tax implications of doing so. Um, Look, the largest country in the world that has done this, El Salvador, has seen a dramatic rise in tourism, has seen a... Increase in GDP has also seen an increase in investments and companies either being formed in El Salvador or deciding, hey, we want to offer our product or service in El Salvador as well. So, look, this is all really exciting stuff. I think a lot of Bitcoiners are euphoric over this that a candidate is coming out there and saying these things. I will caveat all of this. All of this. If you are familiar with me, my beliefs, and And what I say when it comes to the political realm, I'll keep it short and simple. I'll believe it when I see it. And I've been following RFK Jr. very closely. He talks about Bitcoin when he has that audience. But when he's not talking to a Bitcoin audience, he doesn't talk about Bitcoin. Now, he's catering to his audience. He's catering to get votes. It just begs the question of, Can this plan be implemented, and will he follow through? Time will tell, and we will see what other candidates' responses are as a result of this. We have a lot more to talk about, so be sure to stick around through the commercial break. We're going to be breaking down some news out of the rest of the world, so be sure to stick around. We'll be back after this. Let me just
1: run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This
6: podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform.
7: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hello, and welcome back to The Mark Moss Show, where we talk about the decentralized revolution, running through some of the latest breaking news stories from around the world. My name is Q, and I'm filling in for Mark this week. If you missed our last segment, be sure to check out the full episode available on every podcast platform. Just search for The Mark Moss Show. Now, we like to look at the world through the lens of politics, finance, and technology. For this segment, I'm going to focus on two of those, the intersection of politics and finance. And we're going to go back to the global stage and discuss the waning influence of the G20. Now, we got to understand first how the G20 even sort of came to be. And it was founded in 1999 by the finance ministers and central bank governors of 19 countries. So, a bunch of central bankers decided to get together and essentially said that we're going to, you know, discuss economic and financial issues and make sure that, you know, the world is going in the right direction. In fact, one of the sort of check marks, positive things about the G20 during the time that I was researching this was that they are. Credited with helping stabilize the global financial system during the 2008 financial crisis, but this is a group of central bankers, and I think most of us have come to realize that it was the central bankers who caused the 2008 financial crisis, so you're telling me these guys solved the problem they created, or in other words, they did the bare minimum that's the selling point here. You did one thing right. The other really interesting point, and it, I just I can't help but laugh every time I even think about it. Uh, they meet once a year, all right? That's it. It's not like a quarterly once a year to discuss economic and financial issues. This year, however, you had a significant number of countries either opt out, they didn't send a single finance minister, Or they sent someone junior who doesn't have the authority to make decisions on behalf of their country. So you essentially had a bunch of countries in the G20 show up to them, annual meeting, and just phone it in on top of the fact that, by the way, the countries that didn't show up, the UK and Germany. So it wasn't as though it was like some random offshoot. It wasn't a country in Africa or a smaller country in Asia. No, it was UK, one of the global leaders of the financial system, and Germany, another global leader, both essentially saying like, "Hey, we got too many problems to deal with at home," and that's gonna that's the priority right now. And then on top of that, the country that sent in junior members, Argentina, Brazil, France, Mexico, also dealing with a lot of domestic issues right now. They also just essentially said, "Hey, like, we can't whatever you guys want to do. We can't deal with that. We got bigger issues. We got bigger fish to fry at home, and that's gonna be the priority now." The G20, while being credited with, oh, they saved us in the 2008 financial crisis, which again, central bankers were fundamental in causing the 2008 financial crisis. So yay, thank you so much for fixing the problem you started. Um, They've also been criticized for a lack of transparency and accountability. Oh, there's that word, accountability. You know, the thing where if you mess something up, you're supposed to own it, fix it, and Learn from your mistakes so you don't make that mistake again. None of that here, right? Absolutely none of that for a bunch of politicians. The group has also been accused of being dominated by the interests of the G7 countries. Now, that is really important. And that is really important. Why? Well, we talked about this a few weeks ago now, but the GDP of the G7 countries for the first time ever has actually crossed below the GDP of the BRICS countries. And you know, there's been a lot of speculation on this show and pretty much any news program that's been discussing this, that does this spell the end for the G7? Does this spell the end for the US dollar? You have the BRICS countries that actually are getting together next week. On the docket over there, they're discussing a possible new global currency that's going to be backed by the gold. There is a significant power shift that is happening in the world, and it's happening very quietly and very subtly. And I say subtly because it's not as though the G20 countries didn't meet. It's not as though nothing got solved by them. It is worth noting, last month, Zambia, they helped Zambia strike a deal to restructure $6.3 billion in debt owed to governments abroad. Could you imagine if the U.S. had only $6.3 billion of debt that they owed? Oh, man. No, we have 30-some-odd trillion dollars of debt that we owe. So... Needless to say, the U.S. has been, and much of the G7 countries, have been using this almost as a platform to instill monetary policies that benefit them. But we're at a point now where people are realizing they don't need to listen to the U.S. The B in BRICS stands for Brazil, and Brazil is a part of the G20. And Brazil was also one of the countries that only sent a junior member to the G20 summit. I'll be really interested to see who Brazil sends to BRICS, because that right there will seal the deal. If Brazil ends up sending their senior finance minister, if they send over significant people within their government who have the authority to make decisions, I read that loud and clear. We don't really care what the G20 has to say, but we we will listen and hear to what the BRICS countries have to say. And that is Again, we continue to talk about the waning influence of America and the waning influence of sort of these elite powers that while we in the developed countries continue to hear stories out of Great Britain, out of France, of course, our domestic issues, the rest of the world just doesn't care what we have to say. The rest of the world is starting to recognize like, hey, the policy decisions made by these countries are the reason why we are dealing with the issues that we are dealing with now. So it's just, it is very telling that if one of the concerns that's been brought up about the G20 is, hey, you guys seem to just stack the deck for seven of the 20 members and then just start to tell everyone else, like, yeah, 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 figure it out. But we need to do these things for, it's it's to help the world. We're gonna help the world by helping these countries. Now, there are some other reasons why the G20's influence has declined. You see a rise of new economic powers, such as China and India, which is, they've challenged the traditional dominance of the G7 countries. We talked about the B in BRICS, C is China, I is India, might as well just mention the R is Russia. Russia has essentially had their, all of the US dollars that they have, all the US debt that they've been holding through the sanctions based on Russia's invasion to Ukraine, we have weaponized that money. And as a result, Russia is looking at it saying, okay, so what's the point? If we do something that the U.S. doesn't like, they're just going to save the money that you've been saving in dollars. We're going to prevent that from being spent. We're going to prevent that from going to the world. So Brazil, Russia, India, China, the last country in the BRICS acronym is South Africa, I guess the only way I can close the loop there is just to point out that the BRICS countries are meeting in Johannesburg next week. So boom, covered all the BRICS countries on that. Uh, But let's continue as to the reasons why G20's influence has declined. Growing polarization of the G20 with countries increasingly divided on issues issues such as trade and climate change. And I think the climate change one is really important. We're going to talk about it a little bit in the next segment when I talk about China. But there seems to be this sort of policy, regulatory moat almost where these countries that have established their economies like the US are turning around and telling other countries that are developing, that are trying to grow their economies, hey, you shouldn't do that because it's bad for the environment. Yeah, but aren't you? No, 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 no. Don't worry about what we do in our country. Don't worry about the pollution that we put forward. Don't worry about the way that we care about the environment. You need to do better than us. You need to care about the environment more. I'm sorry, but that's just a load of BS, but we have a lot more to talk about. We're going to be talking in depth about China after this commercial break. So you are not going to want to miss out. Please, please, please stick around through this commercial break. And if you're listening on the podcast, would love it, would love it. If you leave us a review, let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. We'll be back after this commercial break.
7: And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Store on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hello, and welcome back to The Mark Moss Show, where we cover the decentralized revolution, running through some of the latest breaking news stories from around the world. My name is Q, and I'm filling in for Mark for this hour. And if you missed any part of our show this week... Be sure to check out the full episode available on every podcast platform, just search for the Mark Moss show. Now we always like to look at the world through the lens of politics, finance and technology, and we've been talking a lot about China and the recent chips war going on, and I'll let Mark dive into that deeper with his guest tomorrow. But I want to look at the ongoing conflict with China through just through a different lens, and I really want to highlight just how fragmented our relationship with them has become. So a couple of weeks ago, Janet Yellen Made a trip to China. Now, the timing of the trip was a little strange or not a coincidence, as I like to say. Her trip comes just days after China announced export controls on gallium and germanium. These are two key inputs into semiconductors. Essentially, you need this to make the semiconductors. And this restriction from China was a response to the US restriction on what type of semiconductors can be sent. China. So there seems to be a a growing amount of tension, but despite that, Janet Yellen insisted the US has no interest in decoupling. Meanwhile, we're onshoring a bunch of factories and we're bringing over essentially our work back on American soil. Sure. Now, it is important to note that based on a former CIA expert on China, Dennis Wilder, The Chinese leaders actually see Secretary Yellen as one of the most pragmatic and less political senior officials in the Biden administration. Okay, I guess it's a really low bar. Worth highlighting, though, that Xi Jinping continues to not meet with Joe Biden. I know that that's a conversation that the two uh, governments are having. At least the U.S. is trying to push for that meeting. China couldn't be bothered, to say the least. But... What's really interesting is what the Chinese media is saying about this meeting. And, you know, one one state owned media outlet, Xinhua News Agency, described the conversations that Yellen had with the senior Chinese officials as constructive. And another one, the Global Times, quoted Premier Li Qing as telling Janet Yellen that China US ties can see rainbows after a round of wind and rain. Okay. So that means. China sees our current relationship as that akin to being in the middle of a storm. Okay, that that's not I, an ideal place to be with someone where you're asking them for a whole lot. Then you got to understand what it is we're asking them. Well, Janet Yellen went over there on a climate crusade, but she wasn't the only one. We'll get to that in a second. Yellen met with climate finance leaders and suggested China support efforts like the Green Climate Fund and the Climate Investment Funds to address the effects of climate change on developing countries. She was going there to essentially highlight the fact that, hey, between the US and China, we produce about 40% of these greenhouse gases. So if we were to make significant changes to our policies, we could theoretically really have a substantial impact on at least this aspect of greenhouse gases going out into the world. But Janet Yellen wasn't the only one. Remember John Kerry? Well, he also found himself in China and he went to discuss climate change. Oh boy, John. Well, turns out that China didn't really care. In fact, uh, senior leader Li Shuo, the senior climate advisor with the environmental group Greenpeace in Beijing, was quoted saying, further engagements should help unlock more ambition in reducing coal consumption, cutting methane emissions, and beating a path towards a stronger outcome at COP28, a climate summit that's going to be in Dubai later this year. I want to unpack this quote, though, because What this person is saying is that they're not saying, hey, we're going to use less energy. No, we're just going to move off of coal. What they're not saying is, hey, we're going to, whatever energy we would have been using through coal consumption, we're going to use that energy, but we're going to find a different way. And then cutting methane emissions, look i and mark have talked a lot about this but there is clear evidence showing you how bitcoin mining is actually taking these flared methane gases and essentially opening the door for reducing emissions finding stranded energy and then creating hard sound money as a result now if you're actually familiar with china and bitcoin and their sort of intertwined history you'll know that technically as of this recording right now, China has banned Bitcoin. And yet Hong Kong is slowly exploring ways for people to get exposure to Bitcoin. It is also worth noting that China had previously already banned Bitcoin and then unbanned it only to then reban it. So could we actually be seeing steps being made to potentially have China adopt Bitcoin, become a global leader in Bitcoin mining. This is pure speculation. But the fact that they're highlighting cutting methane emissions, to me, that feels like a very straightforward, hey, we can continue to use the energy output. We're going to need more energy if we want to expand our country and continue to grow. And there are ways to do that that are economically viable. But the weird thing is, these were not the only two U.S. government officials to go to China. In fact, Henry Kissinger, which, if you may not realize, was he was instrumental in helping to arrange uh, President Nixon's visit to China. Henry Kissinger actually made a visit to China, and he actually met with a senior defense minister. It wasn't like he was on vacation. He seemed to be going there and having very clear-cut political and strategic conversations. Kissinger met with the Chinese defense minister, Li Shangfu in Beijing last Tuesday. And it's it's almost so crazy, but it gets crazier because Li Shengfu refused to meet the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at a regional security forum in Singapore just a month ago. We're not, we're at a point where the Chinese officials are saying, no, I don't want to talk to this one. Bring me back Henry. Bring me back Henry Kissinger. Uh, it would probably be a bad time to admit that I was surprised to know that Henry Kissinger is still alive. The man is hundred years old. He has done a lot for this country, but he is not actually a member of our government today, right now. But the fact that, Other countries do not view our current leaders who will not meet with Joe Biden, who will not meet with the current defense minister or defense secretary, but will meet with former ones, is very telling about what place the U.S. has. Now, it is important to know that during all of this, there have been some economic news coming out of China specifically that their exports have fallen the most in three years. Specifically, exports from China have suffered a severe decline, plunging by 12.4% year over year in June after a 7.5% decline in May. So you're looking at almost, I think when I calculated it out, it came out to like 18% decline in just exports. And then not to mention the fact that imports are also experiencing a sharper contraction than expected, declining by 6.8%, surpassing the predicted 4% decline. So China's exports to the U.S. saw the sharpest decline amongst its top trading partners down almost 24%. We've been running through some of the latest breaking news from this week. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show. If you've missed any of today's show, don't worry. We have got you covered. Just head on over to your favorite podcasting platform and search for The Mark Moss Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Mark will be back with an awesome interview with Matt Pines to dive even deeper on the U.S. and China's relationship.
3: It's brand new season two.